This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors. The podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And I'm Sophie Robinson. So, big questions first, Sophie. Do you think I'm chromophobic? What? Well, you know, actually afraid of colour. I think you do think that. Well, well, I think you've definitely shown some quite strong tendencies towards the, shall we say, creamier end of the spectrum. Let's put it that way. Well, our sponsors, Harlequin, have commissioned a report into why some people are afraid of using colour. And it turned out that it's a mix of both science and culture. Now, are you ready? Because this is the science bit. So the light receptors in our eyes all process colour in the same physical way. But when it gets to our brains, our emotions step in and alter our perception of what we're seeing. So that goes to explain why everyone reacts to every shade differently. So does this explain why I love cobalt blue, for example, while you have to wear sunglasses when you come and visit? Exactly. And now Harlequin is using this insight to train their staff to provide better guidance to customers. So helping them choose colours for their home that are perfect for them and understanding that some people are afraid of choosing colour simply because they don't understand their instinctive reaction to it explains why so many just fall back on those safe neutrals. Anything that helps people move over to the brighter side of life is a good thing in my book. Now, just what is it? about cobalt blue that upsets you so much? I don't know. I can just vaguely remember a pair of quite uncomfortable stilettos in about 1985. (laughs) I'm haunted. (laughs) Okay, so if, like Kate, you have some niche footwear-related trauma that's causing you a (laughs) colour block, check out the fascinating white paper over on the Harlequin website on harlequin.sansongroup.com and we'll pop a helpful link in the show notes too. But before you rush off and do that, have a listen to what we've got in store for you today. Well, first up, we're going to tackle gracious indoor-outdoor living. Or put it another way, is there a way to make outdoor socialising anything other than chilly, soggy, uncomfortable, ugly and unappealing? Well, you're really selling it there, aren't you? We are also... (laughs) By the look of our British summer so far, that's where it's going. Yeah, that's true. So we are also going to reveal all when it comes to the art of dressing your table with the proper pomp and ceremony it deserves. 
and our style surgery tackles the vital question of whether you should save all your budget for the big refurb or break into the piggy bank right away just to make the place a bit easier to live with in the meantime. I reckon that's a dilemma a lot of people have to deal with. So, first up, the, well, not-so-great outdoors. I'm hoping it will all have cheered up a bit by the time you hear this, but at the time of recording, it's been basically raining for my entire life. <laughs> but you've got, haven't you got, like, a, a Danish sitting suit? Oh, I've got the gear. I've got the gear. I mean, we made a fleeting mention of this in the last episode because you turned up to Sophie Ellis Spexter's house in said Danish sitting suit. And I thought you looked like you just arrived in a duvet. So maybe we should explain. Well, it sort of is a duvet with sleeves and a big zip and it's ankle length and a hood. And it's perfect for sitting outside and wrapping up warm, bit waterproof, bit showerproof. I think everybody's going to need one. I just love the fact that essentially it is a sleeping bag with sleeves. Yeah. And yet by calling it a Danish sitting suit, <laughs> you suddenly turned it into something of the height of sophistication. Yeah. And now I must have one. Exactly. <laughs> I've elevated it. I've elevated it into something really quite fabulous. And I love it. Well, the reason why your Danish sitting suit is indeed actually quite genius is because we've all had to get used to socialising outdoors. And it looks like we're going to continue doing that. And I think the last year has definitely got us all a lot more focused on our outdoor spaces. We are loving our gardens like never before. And so maybe it's time to take the great indoors, outdoors for this segment of the show and talk about how we can create magical outdoor spaces from your little patio and balconies to your full on garden lawns. I think that's the key point, isn't it? I mean, for years when it comes to interiors, everybody's been talking about, oh, you've got to bring the outside in and it's plants and all that. But actually, it's totally about reversing it now. And it's about taking the indoors out. And, you know, we often see on television gardening programmes and read in magazines, you know, it's about another room. And gardeners talk about creating an outdoor room or a series of room, but they mean doing it by plants. And I don't understand that. And I don't, I'm just, I can't do the plant thing. But I do understand about getting the right furniture to make a comfortable outdoor space and essentially creating an outdoor living room. And my number one thing, which revolutionised how we use the garden, was buying an outdoor sofa. I do not want mm. deck chairs that collapse when you sit in them and low little sunbeds that I'm frankly too old to get out of. And once we got an outdoor sofa then suddenly it all started to come together. So what you're saying, Kate, is it's all about the comfort and it's time to move away from rickety little plastic garden chairs or those sun loungers that kind of like fold you up like a deck chair. And ping you across the garden, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. And sort of really invest in something a bit more substantial. I mean, I've in the name of research for the podcast, I went to a local garden centre yesterday. I was actually buying some bits to go in our new flower beds. Ooh. Dedicated? I know, but do you know what I saw? A sea of acres and acres of grey wicker with grey cushions. I was like, seriously, where is the colour? I mean, you know, talk about ban the beige, it's ban the grey. I'm sorry, you're just looking at me with a real deadpan face. You've got a grey wicker sofa, haven't you? I've just realised. Yeah, and I sort of wish I didn't. I've got the most fabulously comfortable sofa, which I bought four or five years ago from made.com and they now do it in a natural wicker 
and I wish I could justify going again, but I can't. So I am sort of looking at everybody in their gardens with their Rust-Oleum paint and thinking, hmm, can I? Or maybe I'll just live with it in grey. Well, I've got a suggestion for you. Oh, yeah. Because I'm in the market for a garden sofa. We Do you don't want really... my grey one and I'll buy a new one? <laughs> well, I could take it off your It's hand. really you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, really. Because I've got a thought, because I was looking at all this garden furniture and thinking, well, look, you know, it is. if it's not grey, then it's beige and so that's still not massively winning me over and I thought there's so much missed opportunity you could cover the cushions yes. no? like all these grey cushions there are some fabulous and I don't know if listeners are aware but you can buy outdoor fabric by the meter it's UV resistant it's waterproof it's usually made of sort of polypropylene you can even get trimmings for garden furniture. So Samuel and Sons, I was in there the other day and they've got a whole section of outdoor trimmings. Outdoor pom-poms. <laughs> yes! Brilliant. You can even make colourful cushions for your outdoor wicker furniture, be it dining or sofas or whatever. Have fabulously coloured cushions with a pom-pom or a brush fringe trim. And that suddenly got me very, very excited. So leaving aside my grey faux rattan sofa, which is enormously comfortable and I will look at draping the cushions in something more colourful, maybe. Is there fashion in outdoor furniture? Yeah, there certainly is. And it was not represented in Northcutts and Jitchling Garden Centre yesterday, as I said, the (laughs) the swathes of grey wicker. (laughs) There is some really cool garden furniture out there. And I think for something that's, shall we say, a little bit more direct, I'm seeing just loads and loads of this faux rattan, faux bamboo style furniture really taking off. And it's essentially a woven plastic that looks like a natural rattan or cane. And what's even more brilliant is it can also come in colours. So you can go for the natural look for sure. But also if you go for this sort of French bistro chair, you know the French bistro chairs you see outside cafes in Paris and they come in all kinds of glorious colours. Sort of woven. Yeah. And so the frame is actually metal, but it's spray painted to kind of look like faux bamboo. And then the seats and the backs are woven plastic, but you can get them in literally any colour. And it just has a really lovely chic vintage look about it. So I'm a massive fan of those. Or indeed, I dug out my granny's vintage campaign chairs and all the fabric was rotten on them, the canvas. But the Stripes Company do the most amazing deck chair fabrics in canvas that's suitable for outside. So just with some tacking pins, we replaced all of those in some really bright, lovely vintage stripes, which look super cool. Or one of my all-time favourite outdoor garden furniture brands is Fermob because they do outdoor furniture. It's metal. It comes in 24 different colours, Kate. Oh, it's insanely brilliant. And I think Jennifer Newman does coloured outdoor powder-coated steel furniture as well. So there are places to get it. It's not the budget option, but it does look fabulous and it will last forever. The other place that's worth looking at, there's an antique dealer called Merchant and Found. And he's he's got a bit of a thing about vintage chairs. And he has masses of sort of vintage outdoor Tollex chairs and old fur mob and stuff that he rescues from cafes sort of all over Europe and brings back and reconditions 
commissions them. So that would be a really nice way of doing it, sort of vintage French cafe chairs in your garden. That's a look I could go for. Yeah, I think the thing is you've got to think about it. Don't just go for the generic grey wicker garden centre look. You know, you can create your own sense of style, whether it's something like me who wants all the colour and the brights or something that's softer and more vintage looking. Essentially, you can create your outdoor space to look as stylish as any room in your home, wouldn't you say? I do think that. And I also think the real problem I have with with the sort of generic garden furniture is why is it all so square? It's a sort of series of square chairs and square boxes. So, you know, try and get something vintage or look around for something. I mean, I think, Sophie, your key point when we're decorating inside is, you know, remember your kitchen and your bathroom is part of your overall house and bring that look into those rooms. And I think that's the key point for your garden is it's part of your look. Just because it doesn't have a ceiling and walls doesn't mean that you have to completely sort of change your style. I've got a a sort of standard lamp, if you like, that plugs in outside. So I've tried to create the look of a sitting room outdoor. Like quite literally using those sitting room motifs of the rug, the lamp. The coffee table, the set, no rug. Right. Now you see, that's where I draw the line. Oh, what's wrong with an outdoor rug? I don't know. Oh, I like an outdoor rug. No. What's, what, what, what? No. Why? Well, in my deep dive rabbit hole into thing, apparently the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah sent searches for outdoor rugs rocketing like 400%, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, I, Out of all the things that were revealed on that yeah, yeah. interview, the fact people are looking at the rug is quite That was my fact. That was my fact. Never, Nothing else they said was of any relevance or interest. But, you know, the outdoor rug, huge, huge. But I just feel I'm all for a kind of practical outdoor style rug in a conservatory or a garden room if you have such a thing. But I don't know. I think it's a step too far for me. It feels too contrived. I want the natural textures. So I want a comfortable sofa and I want an outdoor lamp. And I quite like the idea of creating something that looks like a room with, if you like, a grass carpet or a cobblestone rug. I don't know, it just, that feels more natural. Sorry, what did you just say? A cobblestone rug or a grass carpet? What are are those? That's grass, Sophie. It's what you have in gardens. (laughs) 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 Sorry, I was just, I was thinking there's a whole new genre here of grass rugs that I've not heard of. No, I like the natural, natural grass. Well, that's, okay, so this is all well and good if you have a lovely, well-managed lawn or you have beautiful decking or indeed cobblestones but what if you've got as in my case because we're in a bit of a make-do situation with our garden set up right now uh, really horrible cement tiles which are all a bit broken up and unattractive I think you know if you haven't got the beautiful patio or if indeed you've just got a hard stone patio putting a bit of a rug there where you're paddling around in bare feet you can throw some cushions on top of the rug so you can have a little lie down a little picnic okay you see you see I'm gonna concede that point and move swiftly on to outdoor cinemas are huge more rooms outside yes now we have talked about this in the podcast before and you've 
scoffed at me with my fascination of outdoor cinemas and goes, well, it doesn't get dark till 10 o'clock. Nobody's going to do it. I did not scoff. I'm sure you did. And you were like, oh, it's just an Instagram craze and nobody's watching. I mean, if it wasn't on the podcast, it was definitely in conversation. Have you come round? Have you been influenced? No, I haven't come round, but everyone else has because apparently searches for outdoor cinemas are up by 400% for people looking for garden projectors. So I thought, you know, that's mammoth, isn't it? And also, I have not finished with the stats. Give me stat room. <laughs> Made.com did a survey and found that searches for garden bars are up by 122%. I mean, and that's brilliant because you don't need much space and there's no last orders. A garden bar. So what constitutes a garden bar? Is it a table with some bottles of booze on it? I think it probably is. It's an outdoor cupboard, but it's a spin-off from the outdoor kitchen of which searches for those are up by 60%. I mean, I would love an outdoor kitchen. I mean, I've got a barbecue. I think the outdoor kitchen is the ultimate gold star of Lux, isn't it? I mean, we are hopefully, fingers crossed, commencing with our extension plans in the autumn. And top of Tom's wish list is an outdoor kitchen. He's from South Africa. So, you know, the whole eating outside thing is such a big part of his culture. And I'll do anything if it's an excuse for somebody to cook me dinner. So I'm like fully fully signed up for the thought that he's suddenly going to... You know, because he'd like to cook out there all year round as well. It wouldn't just be a summer thing for him. The thing in South Africa is they just bear the elements all year round. So, yeah, investing in this outdoor kitchen with our sofa area. This has all been designed by our garden designer. There's going to be like a... A seating area, then there's going to be the dining area, and then there's going to be the outdoor kitchen right next to the actual kitchen. I hasten to add. I mean, this is what's so bizarre is like Sarah Mitchell, who's designing our garden, said that basically we want to keep everything as close to the house as possible, even though we've got quite a large plot here. She was like, honestly, you won't use it. People want to step out of their house straight to the dining table, straight to the sofa straight to the outdoor kitchen. So the bizarre thing is the outdoor kitchen will literally be about 10 paces away from our actual kitchen. (laughs) But apparently that's the way we live and that's the way we use it. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I suppose you, what, have a barbecue, you can have a pizza oven, you can repurpose an old kitchen sink and then you just want some cupboards for storage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you're going fancy, aren't you? You're going so much fancier, I can tell. Well, I don't I don't know. I mean, you can get into outdoor fridges and all of this kind of stuff, but I think, you know, the budget can get ridiculous. Outdoor fridges are really expensive because obviously they're designed to be outside. And then um, Sarah said that Everybody who's having outdoor kitchens apparently wants one of these big green eggs. Have you heard of them? Is that a barbecue thing? They're a barbecue. They're like a big ceramic egg and they produce restaurant-worthy food, apparently. But I had a quick Google. <laughs> over a £1,000. I believe David Beckham has one. I've seen <laughs> yeah, pictures well, of him go. using his big green egg. Yes. Surely, I mean, restaurant-quality food's in the in the eye of the person wielding the tools, isn't it? Not the machine? Isn't part of... Eating outside, having a bit of a char-grilled sausage and a crispy round-the-edges burger. I just sometimes think that's the whole well, thing. Well, there's a fine line between a burnt sausage and a raw chicken, <laughs> but yeah, I see where you're going with that. I mean, the thing is, Sophie, it's all very well with your outdoor kitchen and your eggs and your barbecues, but, you know, 
So far, I've got to say this summer is not shaping up to be all that. I think I'd rather stay inside by the fire. Well, no, you you raise a really good point. And I think in the UK, we have quite a short window of fair weather to enjoy our outdoor spaces. So I know that fire pits and heaters are really gaining popularity. And there are definitely a few things to think about here. I think headline here is the environment, you know, having like gas outdoor heaters, for example, has been proved to be a bit of a no-no. You're much better off going for an electric option. They heat up quicker, they're more efficient. And of course, if your energy supplier is green and uses renewable energy, then that's even better. Second of all, obviously, you've got your wood-burning fire pits going for, you know, your campfire option. That makes everything smell. Well, you can cook on top of them too. Mm -hmm. So you smell of wood, smoke and sausages. (laughs) Joy, I'm here for that, not. Well, you might like this option as well. Bioethanol fuel. So this is fuel made from food waste. It's non-toxic. It burns clear. It has no smoke and no smell. I'm in. There we go. Get yourself one of those or indeed an old fashioned blanket and hot water bottle. That's yeah. And my sitting suit. And I might just stay in the sitting room and you can bring me the char grilled (laughs) sausage when you've cooked it. So do come and share your golden garden tips with us. You can chat to us on Instagram where I'm Sophie Robinson Interiors and she's mad about the house. Or, of course, come to our lovely great big Facebook group, The Great Indoors Podcast, which is so overflowing with expertise and enthusiasm. For example, Rabia Mir accidentally got her groups modelled and posted about the new bottles she was hoping her baby son would soon take. There was no snipiness. She was greeted with bundles of messages wishing her good luck and sympathising with the trials of breastfeeding. Oh, I remember that. Now... Next up, I want to tackle the tablescape because it's rather exciting to think that we can finally have some people over for supper or indeed lunch. And I think we should mark the occasion by dressing our table to impress. And I'll tell you why I kind of thought this was quite a hot topic. is I'm just seeing it all over Instagram. It's like competitive tablescaping. And it's all napkins and place settings and beautiful handwritten menus and flower displays. And it's all very maximalist and pattern and glassware and twinkly candlelight. And I'm here for it. I'm just loving it. Have you noticed that on Instagram, Kate? Needless to say, (laughs) Needless to say, I am less here for that. I'm going to wind you back a bit. I've sort of, you know, tablescaping. You know, where I come from, it's called laying the table. What is the tablescape? Why has this now got to be a whole new thing? It's like people used to talk about putting something on the mantelpiece, but nobody puts anything anywhere anymore. It's all styled. Styling the mantelpiece. I'm scaping my table. No, really? You're just laying it. Do you lay the table? I mean, it's an interesting move, I think, you know, because I think Jamie Oliver sort of came around, I don't know, was it 20 years ago and said, oh, you just need to like bosh a breadboard in the middle of the table and let everybody rip and share. And it was all like, oh my gosh, it's like out with all my mum's old fashioned terrines and platters of canapes and all the different glasses for all the different drinks for all the different courses. I got to say... I do lay the table every day and we do have napkins, but I am a bit more of a bish bash bosh in the middle of the table, let's all dig in than than fancy twinkly glasses. However, 
I was chatting to Sophie Richardson, who works at Sheffins, the auction house in Cambridge. And she told me that over the last few months, the value for pattern dinner services by people like Spode, Davenport, Wedgwood, etc., have gone through the roof, you know, along with that lettuce ware, which obviously you can get vintage, but, or is it cabbage ware? Everybody's suddenly looking for the original and the constant spry vases and things that, you know, you used to find in the charity shop and nobody wanted them and you could pick them up for 25p. And they're now coming up at auction and selling for £50, £100. And that's the real new sort of trend, if you like, is vintage China. Well, there you go, because it's all harking back to formal dining, isn't it? I mean, I remember so clearly, this must be in the 80s, my mum had a plate and a cup and a dish and a mug and an espresso cup and a teaspoon and a fish knife. And my goodness, it just went on and on and on. And there was like a whole bureau where she kept all this stuff because it was the dinner party era. You know, they were the era of having people over for dinner. And like I said, it was the it was the canapes at the beginning of the evening, which, you know, age 12 or whatever, I got to hand out to everybody. <laughs> and then it was all the different stemware of the different glasses for the different type of wine. And then you had the aperitifs and then you had the after dinner liqueurs and they all had different glasses. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And I'm just sort of seeing this is all kind of coming back, making a really occasion out of having people over for supper and then just just really enjoying creating a real visual feast on the table. So it's bud vases with the little stems running down the centre of the table. It's wicker placemats. It's beautifully tied napkins. It's patterned tablecloths. There's no runners. I mean, this is opulence. This is like tablecloths that cascade down onto the floor. It's sort of glass plates. It's twinkling candlelight. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's like, forget what you're eating. You could have fish and chips at the end of of this. It's all about making the table look really, really sumptuous and beautiful. Yeah, you see, I'm never going to forget about what I'm eating. But I think it's, you know, it's like all these things. It's really circular, isn't it? And so, you know, in the 90s, it was all about the sort of gastro pub and the big white plates. And as you say, the wooden serving board yeah and now we've we've switched back from that and it's about bringing in color and i mean another way obviously you don't necessarily want to shop at auction but apparently etsy's a really good place and you want to be looking for hashtag spode or hashtag antique china on instagram and you know have a look for antique china on etsy so there are other places where you can pick things up i mean whether you can still get a bargain or whether it's jump the shark who knows but it's worth looking out i mean i think the difference is perhaps in the 80s or or the 70s, it would all have had to match, wouldn't it? You would have had to have your whole set. And now it doesn't have to match. So you can pick up a plate here or a serving bowl there and, you know, have a sort of mixed match table, which is all perhaps floral or all in the same sort of colours, but it's not all from the same set. Yeah, I think the the big headline is that it is colourful. It's not the sort of paired back white tablecloth with white china and, you know, clear vases. I'm just seeing lots of pattern. I mean, places to go for inspiration. Matthew Williamson has been posting loads lately on Instagram of his home in Mallorca with these fabulous tables set for lunch with candlesticks and his amazing pattern tablecloths and napkins and everything. There's another great Instagram account, Fiona Leahy, who is basically kind of like the go-to 
fashion person for designer parties. And again, it's all lovely, lovely colour and little thought out details. It's sort of glass plates so you can see the tablecloth underneath. I mean, it all can get really expensive, I think, if you're buying all these different elements. But like you say, shopping at auctions or Etsy or online or even indeed, I mean, I'm definitely going to be raiding my mum's china cabinet because she's still got all this stuff is yeah buy vintage but then blend it with new things as well so for example I think the tablecloth is everything like I said it's not about having a white tablecloth but you could buy a bolt of dress fabric or even online you know something that's just a few pounds a meter but like I said have a really long run of it just hem the top and the bottom so it drapes abundantly down each end of the table you can even run up your own napkins if you need to although there is just oh I mean, I'm just seeing so much beautiful textiles and placemats and everything. I mean, I just can't stop myself. I'm like obsessed. I got some good tips from Sheffins, actually, who came up with some names. They said, so obviously Spode is one to look out for because it's growing in popularity. And one I hadn't heard of, which is called Mason's Imari Wear. And that's apparently really growing in popularity. It's got lots of deep blues and oranges and pinks and quite intricate designs. So it's quite easy to spot. Obviously, there's Wedgwood, Royal Worcester, Minton. But the other thing that Sheffin suggested was, you know, the good old-fashioned willow pattern. Do you remember the blue and white willow pattern plates? Oh, yes. Well, I've got that. I've got the willow pattern, the spode blue and white. So that was mass-produced in the late 18th century. I mean, it's instantly recognisable, isn't it? And you can still get really big boxes of it, apparently, for at auction for under £100. So Sheffins are saying the prices might rise. So if you've got some and want to change it over, maybe sell it. Or if you fancy starting, get in there quick. And the other thing about these willow pattern and any of the sort of Victorian dinner services is they're big. It's like 100 pieces, 150 pieces, because they were sort of designed to do place settings for 12 people. So you can get a lot of it for your money. I know. I want a soup tureen. I don't have one, but I just think, isn't that decadent? You you want a soup tureen? I don't even like (laughs) soup. I actually hate soup, but I just want a soup tureen on like a pedestal, a footed soup tureen with a lid. I want one of those. I don't know where I put it though. I mean, that's the only thing. You've got to have storage for all this stuff. You've got to have storage. And there is another thing you have to remember. It ain't going in the dishwasher. (laughs) So, you know, you can have your place settings for 12 people, but you're going to be there at two o'clock in the morning, (laughs) washing and drying. So while I'm getting really, I'm so on board with this. I'm so on board with this. I'm getting so fully carried away, but I have one thing that I'd like to veto. In fact, I'll even put it in the 101 design crimes. And that is the concept. Well, I don't know, it really bothers me. And I see this a lot with like beautiful Instagram accounts, you know, tastemakers are doing it like they're making it look like it's OK, but I'm telling you it's not OK, is these little handwritten menus. <laughs> Your guests, it like, do you know what I mean? Like, what is that? I just find if I went round to someone's house for supper and there was a menu. I would find that quite stressful because there would inevitably be something I didn't like and I'd be fretting. I'd find that really odd. But also, it's not a restaurant. It's not a restaurant. You're coming round to my house for dinner. You get what you're given. What is it? Is it what's it going to be next? Are we going to have waitresses? <laughs> Probably. Yeah, exactly. I find it a bit pretentious. And also, you can't go doing place settings either. That's for weddings only. Ooh, interesting. Well, you would have place settings with you if you're getting your friends and family over. Well, no, clearly, because I've just got a wooden board with a saucepan in the middle of the table going bish, bash, bosh. But, <laughs> but I would say, I don't know, I find going somewhere where there are place settings 
quite stressful because you don't know who you want. You want to sit next to who you want to sit next to. But there is, and I'm sorry to break it into gender stereotypical lines. If you don't have a place setting or a guidance, you do end up with all the boys at one end of the table and all the girls at the other. Although, is that more fun? Well, uh, what I find is usually when we have people over, it starts off kind of girl, boy, girl, boy, because I think people subconsciously know that that's the right thing to do. But after the first course, everyone switched around because all the women want to gossip about Usually, in my case, it's what's going on at school. (laughs) And God knows what the men are talking about. I think ultimately, while I'm a fan of all this formal dining, because I love the pomp and ceremony and I love the opportunity for flowers and pattern and styling and thoughtfulness, essentially, I think the ultimate gift of entertaining is to make everyone feel at home and comfortable and at ease and that this is a lovely place to be. And I just feel if you're Getting into menus and seating plans, you're taking it a little bit step too far. Although, obviously, we haven't had people for supper for so long. I was speaking to someone the other day and she said she's so overexcited that next time she goes out for a dinner, she thinks she might change between courses just to use all her outfits up, which I'm quite here for that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a whole other segment. What are you going to wear for the starter? What are you going to wear for the main course? And what are you going to wear for pudding? (laughs) I think you could start off really full. You see, and by the time you get round to the pudding, you're in a caftan with your flip flops. I'm liking it as a concept. <laughs> or sequin hot pants, depending on which way the evening's going. Yeah, no, my time for sequin hot pants has passed. Done that. <laughs> <laughs> time for the style surgery, which today comes from Jodie in Surrey. Hi, Kate. Hi, Sophie. I've recently bought a house, a 1930s property that needs to be renovated from top to bottom and I've got really big plans to do an extension out the back of the house in a few years time. It's myself and my two young children that are moving in and I was just wanting your advice. Do you think I should save all of my money and put it into my big transformation budget or is it worth putting a little bit of my budget aside to spend at the start to make our time in the house more comfortable from the outset? So this is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because I think it's a dilemma that many of us, most of us have faced at some time. You know, do you wait? And then the danger is that five years down the line, you've done nothing. You're still living with the temporary kitchen because you never got round to it. Or are you going to spend some of your sort of precious savings making it okay until you start again. Where do you stand? I think the way to get yourself through this very... It's really hard time. I mean, I've done it myself. Lived in a house that was Artex and Magnolia and ugly radiators and brown carpet and short curtains. Like, you name it, I had to deal with it. And we have had to slowly chip away and get through it. So what I would advise to Jodie from the get-go is get your vision in place. And there are two reasons for this. I think, first of all, if you get your vision in place early, it enables you to suddenly have your little magpie eye acutely attuned for those bargains or those items in the sale. Or maybe there's a friend who's checking out a grey wicker (laughs) sofa. (laughs) It can suddenly, you think, oh, I can make some use of that. You know what I mean? I think when you've got it in your mind what you're going to eventually look for things start the universe just suddenly starts delivering no it literally means things start turning up so I always think when you've you've got a renovation project in get mood boarding get pinning get your vision in place and the other reason to do that is it keeps your pecker up 
because it, <laughs> it can get a bit like, like I said, I've had many a time where I'm like, oh, I hate, I remember saying to my husband, I hate living here. And he was like mortified because he was probably knee deep in damp proof coursing and rendering at the time, working so hard to renovate the house. And there was me blubbing, saying I hated it. But it was because, you know, it wasn't getting there quick enough. But having my mood boards to go into or to dive back into Pinterest and think, no, hold on, this is the plan. This is where we're going really helped me keep my mood up and my eyes on the prize. There's also degrees of looking at it, aren't there? I mean, you know, if there is a room that is perhaps structurally not going to change, so, you know, you talk about extending or creating a new kitchen, maybe you've got to leave that. But if there's a bathroom that's staying in the same place, then do that so that you've got one room done. And the other thing is, if it's all coming apart and all moving around, then... Just something that's really cheering and relatively affordable would be painting. It's quite can be quite a good experiment if you're not sure what colours you might ultimately want. Use this time to have a real go at all these paints and paint the room so at least it's kind of clean and fresh and you can experiment with the colours while you're sort of, you know, thinking about the overall plan and the structural bit. So it's a sort of temporary change but can still be a bit joyful. That's an excellent bit of advice and actually we did that in our master bedroom. I just got some paint. I painted it myself, which is something I'm not allowed to do in any of the other rooms because I'm apparently not a good enough decorator but because we knew <laughs> because we knew this room was going to get you know the Artex ceiling was going to get plastered and things were going to get moved I thought I'm just going to roll out some colour and I'm not going to be too precious about it and then unfortunately I did then have to live with it like that for five years but it was better than looking at the magnolia which was just killing me off at least I had a colour that I liked on the walls and I hadn't spent an awful lot of money getting it done. The other thing is that you can look at furniture that you will be able to keep beyond renovation if, as you say, Sophie, you've kind of planned it out so you're not necessarily going to change your mind. So rather than, you know, buying a cheap sofa and thinking I'll just chuck it or recycle it if you can in a couple of years, you know, maybe you can buy the sofa that you love. It can just sit in the room that you don't love. But if you protect it when the work is going on, then you're almost staggering the cost so that you can buy some really great bits of furniture that you will always love, have them now in a room that doesn't look great. And then you've sort of done that bit of spending. So you're saving money towards the building. So it's, it is a sort of juggle, isn't it? And I think, you know, no substitute for the old list, but what is it you need to buy? What do you need to spend? The temporary furniture thing is really tricky, isn't it? Because it's going to be probably by its very nature cheap. It might not be sustainable. You've then got to think about getting rid of it or does that end up being your forever sofa because you spent all the money on new windows? So, It's that prioritising, isn't it, of knowing exactly, well, I've got to buy a new kitchen, I've got to buy an extension and I've got to buy a new bathroom, but I've got a sofa that's okay, or, you know, I can use the paint here. So it's working out what to spend and where. And then there are bits of furniture you can buy that can be sort of, what's the word, transportable. So for example, you know, a narrow console table, which might double up as a desk or a breakfast bar, then in a, it could go behind the sofa with lamps on it, or it could end up in the hall as a useful piece of furniture there. So looking at furniture with a view to thinking, well, this could go in this room now, but actually in a year's time, it might go there. So you're getting more use and life out of them. It's all planning, isn't it? Yeah, it's all planning. And it's also about being creative and resourceful you know and as we get older one tends to 
have more budget to do rooms and now we're in our forever house I'm definitely spending more on my home than I have done in previous houses and I've never bought anything thinking oh this is just make do for now until I can afford something it's literally like what's my budget this is what I can have so to give you an example I remember in my first house I spent everything buying the house I had nothing left to furnish it so everything came from Brighton car boot sale and eBay but I just did some really savvy shopping I bought some Urkel chairs I got a set of six for 40 quid they were absolutely ruined but I sanded them down re-glued them, painted them. And 15 years later, they're still the chairs around my kitchen table. I remember one of the first sofas I bought was a secondhand one off um, eBay. It was a Habitat sofa. It did the job for a while. It did end up just falling apart. But you know what? It didn't matter. I'd only spent a couple of hundred pounds on it because it was already an old sofa. So I think rather than thinking, oh, I'm going to buy something and only keep it for a few years, Just look for bargains, buy secondhand, be savvy, check out the online auctions, go to your flea markets and think about painting stuff, recovering stuff, upcycling stuff. And you never know, you might end up falling in love with it and keeping it. And it makes for more interesting interior. I sometimes think if you save up this magic golden egg of a budget that you're suddenly going to spend all in one go. I mean, that's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, how much pressure is that? Better to just have your vision, spend and save as you go. I think if you save it all to spend in one go, you can sort of slightly lose the character because everything looks a little bit new and shiny. So having built up stuff as you go along, hang on to old stuff that you've got that you've brought from house to house or a rug that you've had since you were a student or that you had from your childhood bedroom. You know, those things will bring the character to what will in many ways perhaps be quite a new build by the time you've renovated from top to bottom and extended and so on and so forth. I think the one thing that that can be for me, depressing to live with and is hard to do on a temporary basis is flooring. You know, if you've got horrible laminate flooring that you really hate and you know you're going to change the walls, then maybe you do just have to buy a carpet that you can live with to cover it up with because you don't want to spend money on, you know, parquet flooring or new tiles because if you're changing the position of the walls, then that's money you're not going to get back. But you need to have a look and see what can I really not cope with and what would cheer me up. And if it's a bit of new carpet in all the bedrooms and a coat of paint, then live with that for a while while everything else is going on. But don't have that carpet fitted if it's then going to be trashed, for example. You're right. You need to think of the order of things so that you're not doubling back and wasting money because that's no good for the budget and that's not an environmentally sustainable thing to do either. One thing that also got me through years of, you know, renting and saving and renovating was an occasional little treaty blowout. I'm just remembering a few little things, you know, little naughties. And it's usually just the accessories. So, for example, I remember I bought a designer lamp And it was so eye-wateringly expensive. I mean, I definitely kept it a secret from Tom. But do you know what? It was something that I'd always wanted. And it was a design that I'd particularly fallen in love with. So I knew this wasn't a rash decision. This wasn't a trend thing. This was a genuine piece that I wanted to have in my home. And, you know, and, and of course, I still own that now. Or it might be just like a vase or a really beautiful rug, or a lovely painting for the wall. You know, just something that's the occasional splurge that will be part of your masterpiece when you finish it, but kind of just gives you a bit of joy in the interim. And there are are other little things you can do. I mean, if your bathroom is absolutely horrible, and you, you know, that's expensive to redo, but you can do something like, for example, change the shower head. So maybe you can just get a really good shower in a not very attractive room, but that's something that's relatively easy to do because they often just screw on and off 
or in the kitchen. Oh, that's so practical. I Well, you know, I try. I was all about get all the pretty things in and you're like, oh, make sure you've got a shower that works and an oven that cooks your dinner. Well, you <laughs> want a nice shower. But also, if your kitchen renovation is a few years off, then again, it can be worth maybe having a carpenter in for a couple of days and replacing your kitchen doors with MDF doors and a sheet of MDF is not expensive. So that's more about the labour and then painting it. And that's something that you can then have for two or three years and it will make it a bit more bearable, even if everything's in the wrong place and you're waiting to knock the walls down. Yeah, I mean, there are just endless ideas, aren't there, of cheap facelifts. I mean, you know, we talked about it the other week and I've now seen it revealed on your Instagram, your fridge wrapped in vinyl. I mean, you know, how brilliant is that? You could even wrap your kitchen in vinyl. How about that as an idea? Well, you could totally wrap your kitchen cupboards if they're not paintable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that you can do. And also, I think Anna Jacobs, who gave me the idea for the fridge wrap, has done her worktops and her tiles. So there's all those sort of slightly temporary options. Yeah. So I think, you know, in summary, have your vision in place. Know where you're going with this. Get savvy with your shopping. Get creative. I think some of the most splendid interiors are born out of the fact that there's a tight budget. It pushes you to be more creative and more resourceful. And keep the faith, Jodie. We're here. We're rooting for you. I really hope that helps, Jodie. And if any of you would like the benefit of our, well, argumentative and quite possibly contradictory advice, then do send us a voice note to thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com and we'll do our best to oblige. That's all for now. Although, of course, there will be more detail on our blogs. Mine's sophierobinson.co.uk and hers is madaboutthehouse.com. As ever... A review on your podcast app is much appreciated, especially if it's as glowing as this one. From Blue and Green, who writes, I binged over 50 episodes in the 20 days after I first discovered this podcast. What a delight. Great interiors, ideas and info. It's also very good to hear your environmental concerns and strategies in such a potentially damaging industry. This podcast saved my sanity in lockdown three. I can't thank you enough for providing informative, engaging, inspiring insight into interior design, delivered so lightly that it really helped keep my spirits up. Well... Thanks for that, Blue and Green. That is just so lovely to hear. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Blue and Green. Who is, it turns out, one of our 1.5 million downloads. Fanfare. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) (laughs) That does sound like an impressive amount of listeners, doesn't it? So thanks so much to Harlequin, our colourful and brilliant sponsor, to Kate Taylor of Feast Collective, who is our, well colourful and brilliant producer and to you our colourful and brilliant listeners and we'll see you in the great indoors (laughs) my mum holding up some socks in the door (laughs) for some reason I've got no idea she's just going socks I've got socks brilliant mum excellent socks